0: Hello and welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft book club. Um, In this episode I will be looking at actually two stories. I'll look at uh, Polaris and then since it's a very very short tale I'll also give you my comments on on memory. Alright, so let's start with Polaris. Polaris was, was written in 1918 in the summer uh, it was published in the Philosopher, the first issue of a of an amateur journal called the Philosopher in 1920, and then not reprinted again until 1937, in in Weird Tales. That's when Weird Tales was was publishing a lot of old Lovecraft stuff not long after his 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 death. So um, this story really is, in many ways, a World War One tale. Um, it it deals with a an epic conflict, uh, although not set on Earth, it's set in some other time and place. Um, but it, you know, it's very much the the musings of a of a young man who didn't go to war, but somehow feels felt the need to maybe participate or or feel the this kind of a little bit of self loathing over over one's inability to to really participate in a Titanic. Struggle now Polaris as the title suggests, you know, of course referring to the North Star is also very much a story of, of astronomy and and The sky this story. It's only four pages uh, This is in the Leslie Klinger edition. It's only four pages and the audiobook version I think is is only 10 or 11 minutes or so. So it's a very very short tale and about a half of the story is just involving descriptions of of the stars and constellations and and you know Lovecraft had a very very deep interest in astronomy in his youth he wrote he did amateur astronomy and he published some works in amateur astronomy uh, while he was involved in that amateur journalism phase of, of his career uh, in 1906 for instance he began a, a column in the Potuxic Valley Gleamer. Which is kind of like a school journal, um, a local a local magazine, and he was writing about astronomy there. So he certainly uh, was was familiar with the sky, and it, and it seems he spent a lot of time looking at the sky, and that is something that is revealed in 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 Polaris. Um, now, another thing to say about Polaris, just before we jump into the actual text itself, is that Polaris is also a story of of racial conflict and. In, in some ways it almost reads like a yellow peril story in ways we'll get to quite specifically. Um, in fact, the, the villains of this tale uh, who turn out to be essentially uh, the ancestors of the Eskimos who are presented as almost a separate race are, you know, are described as yellow. So um, it, it might be worthwhile for us to think a little bit about the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, yellow peril ideals, which were ideas that were floating around uh, North America. And then finally, this is a, you know, perhaps one of his first dreamland stories. I you know, I don't know quite if there's some official categorization of which are which are stories of the dreamlands. You know, a lot of his stories deal with dreams and aren't really fitting into this uh, this the dreamland cycle of stories culminating in the dream quest of the Anon Kadath, where you have, you know, dreamers actually experiencing other worlds and other civilizations, and going on various adventures and things. This um, this story does seem to fit into that genre, though. So this, you know, although not the first time dreams feature prominently in his in his stories, it is uh, the first where you really clearly have someone who's using dreams to to travel to some other world and, and live a different life. Although I think the tomb has a little bit of that in it as well. Um, you know, you see dreams in, in, I think even the alchemist has, has dreams playing a role in that, in that story. Or am I thinking of Dagon? Dagon has dreams for sure too. So anyways, dreams all over the place in Lovecraft's writing. Uh, Now, you know, this particular story uh, seems to have been, at least according to Lovecraft himself, inspired by his own dreaming and so maybe he actually dreamed this this isn't the only time he does this and in, in naira i gotta practice how to say that in in Nairal Apateth, this is a short little prose poem that's definitely based on a dream he had um and he and he did this a few times in his in his career many of his shorter stories fit that that um that kind of genre so anyways uh let's talk about polaris and then at the end of the episode i'll take a few minutes to talk about about memory. So as Polaris begins, we're in, the narrator is unable to sleep and he's looking at the stars. And in particular, he's looking at the pole star, Polaris, but he's looking at other uh, um, constellations. And we learn that he can only sleep on cloudy nights because whenever there are stars available for him, he is unable to sleep. So this sleeplessness becomes... A key thematically later, later in the story. But we have, um, and this is only a four page story, but about the first whole page of it is simply him describing the, the scene in the stars that he, he sees. Um, I'll just read some of this and, and, you know, you can look it up. Uh, Klinger gives us the identity of all these different constellations and stars he mentions. Um, but it's, you know, you don't really need to know them. You just got to know he's looking at the stars and he's, he's got this erudite knowledge about the, the constellations. All right. Uh, this is how the story begins. Into the north window of my chamber glows the pole star with uncanny light. All through the long hellish hours of blackness, it shines there. And in the autumn of the year, when the winds from the north curse and whine and the red-leaved trees of the swamp mutter things to one another in the small hours of the morning under the horned waning moon, I sit by the casement and watch that star. Down from the heights reel the glycerpine cassiopeia, and the hours wear on while Charles Wayne lumbers up from behind the vapor-soaked swamp, trees that sway in the night wind. Just before dawn, Arcturus winks ruddily from above the cemetery in the low hillock, and Como bernices shimmer weirdly afar in the mysterious east. But still the pole star leers down from the same spot in the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye. Uh, so this is Lovecraft, you know, describing this this uh, scene of, of stars. It's quite beautiful. Someone who's lived in cities for about 20 years. I can certainly appreciate the the night sky on clear nights when I when I get back to Wisconsin, when I get back to my to. Areas without so much light pollution. It is is nice to see uh, here in Hangzhou. They seem to try to deal with light pollution. Actually, I'm living in China in Hangzhou now. They, you know, you can see on the the streetlights. They do kind of have the the blinkers to keep uh, us from wasting energy lighting the sky. They invested in that, but still, it's always so cloudy here. So so many days. Same thing in Taipei. You know, you got that kind of just just the, the more cloudy. Uh, overcast climate that you don't always see stars even when efforts are made to not not light the night sky but so i kind of kind of really can appreciate this um but what we are learned is that only when the only when it's, it's cloudy when the stars are covered up when the moon is muted that this narrator is able to sleep now during this during while he's sleeping that's when he sees the the city it was under the horned waning moon that I saw the city for the first time, and so during his dreams he is witnessing, he's experiencing this, the city that is somehow connected to to Polaris, and we get a fairly uh, nice description of the city. The key point, though, is that it's very, very far north. Uh, for instance, uh, Lovecraft writes, "And overhead, scarce ten degrees from the zenith, glowed that watching pole star." So it's he's much farther north, right? If the pole star is that uh, high up in the sky, you're higher north, right. And as you get farther to the equator, it, it gets lower and lower and then finally it, it I guess it disappears in the, in the southern hemisphere. And there are other signs here that we're, we're, we're certainly in a northern um, northern city. Um, so after he experiences the city for the first time, every time he sleeps on cloudy cloudy nights, Every time he's able to sleep, he witnesses, he, he has visions, memories of this of this city. Quote, uh, Thereafter, on cloudy nights, when I could sleep, I saw the city often, sometimes under that horned waning moon, and sometimes under the hot yellow rays of a sun which did not set, but which wheeled low in the horizon. And on the clear nights, the pole star leered as never before. So again, of course, more signs that were in a northern city. There's a mention uh you know, here the yeah, right. It's right here. The hot yellow rays of the sun, which does not set, of course. So, um, summertime in the far north, you don't have nights or, or very limited nights. Um, and as he spends more time in the city, he starts to realize he's living a life in the city. He has friends, he has acquaintances, he starts to know the places, the geography, the the sights and sounds of the city become more and more real. For instance, he has a friend named Alos, who he's described as a true man and a patriot. He's later on, identified that he's a general in this society, which is fighting an epic war against kind of another race called the Inutos. They're described as squat, hellish, yellow fiends who five years ago appeared out of the unknown west to ravage the confines of our kingdom and finally besiege our towns. Now, these are places that appear later in Dreamland stories. I'm not going to mention all of them. They're kind of weird names but these are actual locations that that he'll explore later in his dream one story so maybe i'll say more about those in when you look at later stories i really here want to focus on the the Inutos and this war um between the Inutos because this really gets to some of his racial politics and and really even more so lovecraft's own historical context when he's writing these tales he is uh very closely watching world war one this is clear from his nonfiction writing from his poems from his from his you know his other writings he you know is very much interested in the english fate in world war one and he sees it really as a war of civilizations between between kind of an anglo-saxon civilization and a more teutonic civilization it shows up in his letters it shows up in his poems and it shows up in his nonfiction writing Uh, Let me just give you one brief example. I will look at these in future episodes, but let me give you an example. And particularly the point I want to make here is he saw World War I in in racial terms. Um, Now, culturally, he's on the side of England, but racially, he's more conflicted. So he wrote uh, an essay in the Conservative during his amateur journalism phase called The Crime of the Century. Uh, So this is 1915. He writes... The present European war occurring as it does in an age of hysterical sentimentality and unsound political doctrines has called forth from sympathizers of each set of belligerents an unexampled torrent of indiscriminate denunciation. Later on, in the unnatural racial alignment of the various warring powers, we behold a defiance of anthropological principles that cannot but bode ill for the future of the world. And what is that? Well, he explains that it's, that the, he, he claims that civilization rests in the hands of the Teutonic race, represented by two hotly contending rivals. This is quoting directly from Lovecraft, England and Germany, as well as by Austria, Scandinavia and others. It is undeniably true, as it is vigorously disputed. The Teuton is the summit of evolution. So he is aware of dis- distinctions between the Teutonic race, but he, he sees uh, kind of the Anglo-Saxon and the more... Um, Germanic Teuton race as, as part of the same group, right? And he concludes the essay saying, as a unit, he must, meaning the Teutons, and this is including both the English and the Germans, uh, he must at times come come to crush successfully the rising power of Slav and Mongolian, preserving for Europe and America the glorious culture that we have evolved. So in this essay, The Crime of the Century, Lovecraft uh, bemoans, the fact that's not enough of a race war almost that really the focus of the West, including Germany and England together, should be to oppose the rise of, of the East. But nevertheless, he has this really, really great affinity for for England in the conflict. And part of his, his he did regret not, 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 not serving in the war, not being able to serve. Um, but he wrote a, a poem in 1916, which is kind of a a love letter to, to Mother England, it's an American to Mother England. Um, you know, if you think about like the American Revolution leads to this effort, you know, people like Emerson pushed it and others too, to kind of define and articulate and embrace an American culture, including a literary culture, right? We Shouldn't read so much Shakespeare. We should really read American writers and we should kind of have this cultural independence from England. I don't think Lovecraft buys that one bit. He certainly, um, you know, we know that from the, the the Samuel Johnson story. He has a deep affinity towards especially 18th century English culture, which is, of course, before the American Revolution, when there was this kinds of this white Anglo-American vision of, of the Atlantic world, uh, a transatlantic empire from, from England all the way to to the Mississippi, especially after 1763. And that gets torn asunder by the American Revolution. Um, this is the poem, uh, a bit of the poem. Um, England, my England, can the surging sea that lies between us tear my heart from thee? Can distant birth and distant dwelling drain thy ancestral blood that warns thy loyal veins? Isle of my fathers hear the filial song of him whose sources but to thee belong. World-conquering mother by thy mighty hand, was carved from savage wilds my native land. Thy matchless sons a firm foundation laid. Thy matchless arts the Nansen nation grew. By thy just laws the young republic grew. Um, Later on. um, England, O England, in my love for thee, no dream is mine but blessed memory. Such haunting images and hidden fears coursed with the bounding blood of British sires. From British bodies, minds, and souls I come. And from them... Draw the vision of their home. Awake, Columbia! scorn the vulgar age. Um, and he says more. He, he seems to really think that the American Revolution was a very, very unfortunate rupturing of of an idyllic relationship between kind of parent and child that needs to be somehow restored. Now, back to that Crime of the Century article, right? He, he says the crime is a war between amongst two tons. Right between kind of the Anglo-Saxon and the Germanic um, sides of this, and and of course he's building off of all this racial theory nonsense that has been developed in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century—a racial theory of history—and and we just as we read Lovecraft, we just have to accept that that is the discourse of race that he was locked into. It wasn't the only discourse on race; there were anti-racists out there, but you know it, it was how people tended to talk about civilizations, you know, not as nation states necessarily, but as uh, larger racial blocks, right? The white, yellow, brown race, and then there's subcategories of races, the Slavic, Teutonic, all that. Uh, very, very complex theory, theory, which we're gonna have to get into much more as we read through his writings. Now, the Inutos, back to Polaris, the Anutos are clearly a racial other, right? Um, they're described here. quote again: squat, hellish, yellow fiends from some kind of foreign land coming to conquer them. They are clearly um, others, and this is the more ideal war that Lovecraft is urging his patriot, his compatriots, to fight. Uh, specifically, as he says in *The Crime of the Century* in 1915, which was written, uh, you know, only three years before this story saying the real fight is is against the Slavs and the Mongols, right? So the, the use of the word yellow here um, is not insignificant. It is tying into yellow peril fears, right? And what what were these fears, where were these fears coming from? Well, of course, you have in early 20th century United States a lot of anxiety about emigre, immigration, right? Now, U.S. had basically open borders for its, you know, most of its for more than its first century, all right. And you had different waves of migration. Early migration was like uh, from England and Germany, and and you know the first real kind of cultural other that migrated in large numbers were the were the were the Irish who were Catholic, right? And there's that wonderful uh, book called How the Irish Became White. You can also read uh, what's uh, I forget the author's name. But it's called The Invention of the White Race. That goes all the way back to the colonial period, which is a, it's a great book too. Uh, Allen something? Uh, I forget. Let me look it up. I got Allen right. His name is Theodore Allen. And he wrote a two-volume book called The Invention of the White Race uh, back in the 90s. It's still a standout um, book on the topic of how basically whiteness gets, the concept of whiteness gets invented alongside you know, the creation of racial others, right? Um, very key work in whiteness studies. Now, at the end of the 19th century, the United States faces, um, you know, migration also from Asia, right? Um, you have the Coolie trade, which is bringing thousands of, of Chinese workers um, to the Americas via contract labor systems, kind of replacing the slave trade in some in some ways kind of a, a quasi form of, of slavery through contract labor, bringing them over. You have others just migrating to, to North America. And, you know, even the, the overall anti-racist labor union, the Knights of Labor, supported the 1888 law, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right that was the first immigration restriction and major immigration restriction in u.s history was the chinese exclusion act you have later on i think it's in the 1920s the so-called Gentlemen's agreement where the japanese agreed not to send some you know people over so part of it was just anti-immigrant nativism right and this history of anti-immigrant sentiment goes all the way back to like the know-nothing parties and the nativism of the of the mid-18th mid-19th century but it really culminates, you know, in this wave of new migration in the 1890s up through World War I where you have migrants, you know, especially from Eastern Europe coming in. And they're kind of seen as others too. In fact, Lovecraft and Crime of the Century includes Slavs as Slavs and Mongolians. Those were the, that's where the real war should be fought against, the rise of, of these. And we're going to see when we look at his letters, it's a lot in the letters he writes with, Robert E. Howard, that Lovecraft, and this is going to carry on into the 30s. Lovecraft believed, with some trepidation and fear, about the rise of, of Asia, and he talked. He talked to Howard a lot. He wrote to Howard a lot about, you know, the rise of the Japanese Empire and what that's going to mean for America's position in the Pacific and in the world. And you know, he's, you know, he didn't live to see World War II, but he certainly predicted a, a Pacific-wide conflict. So I'm kind of dwelling on this this, this this one line a lot, but this description of the Unitos as a racial other engaged in a life-or-death conflict for the survival of a civilization, is it's, it's, it's there. And so this is some of the clearest early evidence we have of, of Lovecraft dif- dif- dividing the world into racial categories and seeing them as these conflict zones, right? Uh, you know, uh, Samuel Huntington's thesis of clash of civilizations just much earlier and framed in racial terms and not in terms of of culture so we get more of the moving back into the story we get a little bit more about the background of these people they're called the Lomerians that's the population that seems to dwell near the North Pole um, you know whether this is kind of a, a, a dreamland alternative or in some other time both both are sort of suggested here one is he's accessing it through dreams so maybe it's like the dreamlands and the fact that some of these locations appear later in dreamland stories lends credence to that. But we're also given um, through the astronomy, you know, the location of the North Star at certain times in history, you know, long history, you know, Earth history. You know, there's a suggestion of 26,000 years ago. This is said. So maybe this is just the deep past and, and the relationship that's eventually revealed here of, of between the Unitos and the, and the Eskimos. Are of course lend is is evidence for that kind of reading of it. Now we're told though that the Lomarians again this is the group of the narrators kind of tied into through these dreams they actually had earlier moved southward from Zobna before the advance of the great ice sheet. So this is at some time in the distant past there was a like a Greenland up uh, near the North Pole that eventually got pushed to the south by by an ice age. So we get some kind of deep earth history being suggested here. So um, he wants to fight. Um, This person that Lovecraft's narrator is dreaming of wants to fight. Alos, his friend, this great warrior in general, says to him, well, you can't really fight. Quote, I was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardship. Um, So he can't do that, but he has keen eyes. So he's given the job of of watching over like the watchtower right he even throws in here he had good eyes despite reading all day uh you know my eyes were the keenest in the city despite the long hours i gave to the study of the narcotic manuscripts now this is the first mention of the narcotic manuscripts in in any of love cross fiction it'll come up again in other stories so these this kind of source of ancient wisdom will be explored In some detail in in other dreamland stories and it even shows up in some of the mythos stories i think it's in uh whisper in darkness perhaps we don't really have much of what's in them other than that they seem to originate in the dreamlands and they they contain ancient knowledge so they're kind of the dreamlands equivalent of of the necronomicon or something so anyways he studied these things and despite this his eyes are still good so he's given this job of being the lookout to be the watch out uh, for this attack by the Anutos, um, so the army can prepare or whatever. So he's up in this tower watching for this, but just like the real life equivalent of the narrator, this guy can't sleep um, or he hasn't been sleeping very well. So unfortunately, he, he falls asleep while he's there. And it seems the suggestion here is that he is hypnotized by the pole star itself. He writes, and through an opening in the roof glittered the pale pole star, fluttering as if alive and leering like a fiend and tempter. Methought its spirit whispered evil counsel, soothing me to a traitorous somnolence sum- with its damned rhythmical promise, which it repeated over and over again. Slumber, watcher, till the spheres six and twenty thousand years have revolved and I return to the spot where I now burn. Other stars unknown shall rise to the axis of the skies. Stars that soothe and stars that bless with a sweet forgetfulness. Over, when the round is over, shall the past disturb thy door? So the the poem given, this kind of the song of Polaris that's given to this guy says, "Sleep till twenty six thousand years later, when I'll be in the same spot where I now, um, where I now am." So that's that's of course our original narrator is in that time, seeing the. The pole star at that same moment, that same moment, place in the sky. Now, this cycle is exactly right. Um, Lovecraft knew enough astronomy to, to know this. To, if you check uh, Polaris on Wikipedia, just the pole star, just your north pole star, um, this is what the authors at Wikipedia write. Uh, Over the course of Earth's 26,000 year axial precession cycle, a series of bright naked eye stars in the northern hemisphere will hold the transitory title of North Star. While these stars might line up with the north celestial pole during the 26,000-year cycle, they do not necessarily meet the naked eye limit needed to serve as a useful indicator of north to an Earth-based observer, resulting in periods of time during the cycle when there's no clearly defined north star. There will also be periods during the cycle when bright stars give only an approximate guide to north. So the, the point here is that Polaris is only the pole star now and, and 26,000 years ago, Thousands of years from now, there will be a different pole star, maybe no pole star, just depending on, you know, the, this axial precession cycle, which is um, a slow change in the rotational axis of, of Earth. It's just a cyclical thing. So uh, go back to your astronomy textbooks for for that kind of stuff, if you if you want. So he's being seduced by this uh, pole by pole, the, the pole star to, to, to sleep. Um, He tries to stay awake, but he's unable to. And then he feels this great shame over having failed his civilization because they are indeed conquered, right? Quote, in my shame and despair, I sometimes scream frantically, begging the dream creatures around me to waken me. Ere the Unutas steal up the path beneath the peak, noten, take the citadel by surprise. But the creatures are demons for they laugh at me and tell me I'm not dreaming. They mock me while I sleep. And whilst the squat yellow foe may be creeping silently among us, I have failed in my duty and betrayed the marble city of Olathe. I have failed, fr- proven false to Allos, on and on, right? So this, so it's a story of failure, of, of it, the inability to contribute in this very, very important uh, life or death struggle for, for civilization. Now, as we return to the original contemporary narr- narrator, the, the narrator in, in, in 19, 1918, he begins to warn about, tell stories about this, and everyone laughs at him, says there was no civilization um, back in the Northern realms. There's no land of Lomar. Uh, just, 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 just your dreams. But uh, Lovecraft here makes a connection between the Anutos and the Eskimos, which of course is good for a laugh. Um, there's, not be, there's been not save ice and snow for thousands of years, and never a man save squat yellow creatures blighted by the cold whom they call the Eskimos. So, you know, the Eskimos will show up again in Lovecraft's fiction, of course. They are key in The Call of Cthulhu. So let's, let's remember that. Um, you know, the, he, it's not a one-off mention. But, you know, he seems to be making these the descendants of, the, of these Inutos who are clearly defined as a as kind of a villainous, demonic, trickster race that, that means to destroy civilization. So that's the story of, of Polaris. Again, very, very short. I've said three times as much about the story as it takes you to listen to the, the damn thing. Um, but I think what's important to say about this story is it is defining history in terms of, of racial conflict, of civilization versus barbarism, uh, drawn along lines of racial division. And then you can add to it that this is probably the first Dream 1 story and you have a lot of clues to later Dream 1 stories which you'll develop in future tales and I'll, we'll get to those obviously as we go through this, um, this, um, story, um, anything I'm missing here? Oh, the gomtex, I forgot the Nomtex, gomtex, uh, because. Uh, in the old old history of the Lomarians of the the land of Lomar, how they moved south from the north when this ice sheet came, you know, still far up north, but you know they're fleeing the, the the ice age. They um, quote valiantly and victoriously swept aside the hairy, long armed cannibal nopkiks who stood in their way. So there was other races that had to be. Defeated uh, for the civilization to establish itself in this in this new land kind of so this is a conqueror settler society in its own right So anyway, uh, lots of interesting stuff here to to play with it's a it's a fun little story um, and I think it really is His first clear statement of of, of kind of buying into this yellow peril and, and I think if you read this alongside some of his World War one writings not only do you see a young man who is very, very actively interested in the war. I mean, he's not so young at this point, right? He's 27, 28 when he's writing this. But you know, he's he wishes he could be in the war. He sees the war as a catastrophe that it is. He's torn by being an American, but having this great affinity towards England, seeing England as the father, the mother, actually I should say the mother of his own civilization and his culture. And he he's Got some hand-wringing over the fact that he sees a greater evil um, being readied, and that is in the kind of in the East. Um, some of his letters talk about this, too, now that I recall, but I don't have that first volume of Lovecraft's letters. I I was able to look at them, and I took some notes, but I, I will talk about my notes about them. That's all I can do without having the, the, the actual volume in front of me. If anyone knows how to get a hold of that, without paying a couple hundred bucks. Please, please let me know. I'll be forever indebted to you. Okay. um, Memory. Let's look at memory. All right. Memory is only 400 words long. It's very, very short. Um, I I was originally going to do a whole episode on this, but I I figured I wouldn't have much to say about it. Um, You know... Even for read it and to comment on every line, it probably wouldn't be um, that long. But let's try. Let's see what we can say about this one. It was published in June, nineteen nineteen, in the United Cooperative, another amateur, um, some amateur press. Uh, I think it was also written in nineteen nineteen. Um, so we are given uh, the first half of this very very brief story is a description of a world. Uh, in the valley of nis uh, where we just have all these uh strange trees and creatures and 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 monsters including little apes that bounce around poisonous serpents um, but we also have the relics of an ancient civilization in the case, in, in marvel pavements monoliths ruined palaces um, but it's all overcome by by uh Herbage, evil vines, creeping plants, and all sorts of, of things. So we basically have kind of a post-apocalyptic kind of scenario, but centuries or thousands of years later, just the relics of, of some ancient civilization um, from the past. We even have you know, gray toads and things like this. So the first, actually more than half of this story, is simply just a description of this, this world. And then we're told that there's a valley, and in this valley is the river Than, which, quote, whose waters are slimy and filled with weeds. From hidden springs it rises to subterranean grottles it flows, so that the demon of the valley knows not why its waters are red, nor they are bound. So we're told here that even the supernatural creatures who dwell here, the demons, the demon of the valley, which is later identified as memory itself, de- the demon of the valley is clearly identified as a, a personification an avatar of memory uh, but there's also a genie here so there's kind of supernatural beings floating around and they're not given any origin they're just some kind of um, some kind of old gods um, well this is all kind of archety- ar- archetypical especially with the, the demon who's identified as memory so the d- memory the demon and which is a kind of an interesting way to describe memory as something as a as a daemon, uh, is talking to the genie and the genie asks about about what is all this stuff? Who built this stuff? I'm old, but I have no memory. You know, I have I have, I don't know who built this stuff or where it came from. And the demon says, quote, I am memory and I am wise the lord of the past, but I too am old. These beings were not like the waters of the River Than, not to be understood. Their deeds I recall not for they were but of a moment their aspect i recall dimly for it was like to that of the little apes in the trees their names i recall clearly for it rhymed with that of the river these beings of yesterday were called man so he knows what they were called but he has he doesn't have much memory of them either and that's the point of the story it's like even memory even this god who's the personification of memory doesn't have any memory of 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 man Right, cannot recall man. Only can recall its name. It only recalls the name because it rhymes with the river near where they dwell. So the story ends. The genie flies back to the moon. The thin horn moon. I always horned moons for, for Lovecraft. Um, the daemon looked intently at the little ape in the tree that grew in the crumbling courtyard. So what to say about this very, very brief um, tale? Well, we obviously have a story here of the decline of man, but more importantly, the insignificance of humanity in human history. So uh, again, I think we have kind of a first here. Uh, now, in Polaris, you get certainly this idea that there's a deeper history on Earth, although that might be in the dreamlands. So it's, it's a, for me, it's a little ambiguous uh, that Polaris is set either in the deep past or, or in the dreamlands or maybe both in some way. But um, here, you know, it's just that humanity is just a blink, not, not even memorable to to the gods who, who you know who can observe all of time, right? There, you know, in sometime, you know, nature will overtake our monuments, our cities, our pavements, and we'll all be forgotten. So even that's the jo- that's the point here, is even memory will forget. Humanity at the end and humanity is just presented as totally completely insignificant in the big scope of things Um, now although this is a short story super super short um, it is very key to Lovecraft's overall cosmic philosophy uh, obviously right is that humanity is insignificant in the you know in this cosmic um, in this cosmic tapestry. You know, gods live longer. The stars don't change for thousands of years. That's, of course, a theme in in Polaris as well. Um, Nature changes. You have ice ages, rising and flowing, and humanity is just a blink in the eye and all of those and all of that. And it's that that, that terror over the utter insignificance of humanity that comes so clearly in this little story called called Memory. I I rather like it. I I think I, I, I really dig... Um, this little story memory um, so uh, I guess that's it that's going to be it for this episode so um, so thanks for spending time listening to my thoughts about these give me your own uh, send me your, your email or uh, leave a review on iTunes or send me an email at 100 gmail.com and um, I'll, I'll love to hear what you have to say about this Um. Next, um, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. That's the next story. Now, here, we finally get to talk really uh, quite a lot about eugenics, which I like. Uh, it's also a, another mind-switching story, kind of like the tomb in that way. Uh, it's a, got a bit of science fiction in it. But I think really what we're going to want to f- pay attention to is how Lovecraft talked about the um, backwoods people um, and he talked about them in terms very similar to how eugenicists talked about them so we are going to get ready for this begin talking about uh, early 20th century eugenics and 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 see what lovecraft how lovecraft's ideas fit into that so um that's up next beyond the wall of sleep i'm really looking forward to to sharing my thoughts about that A very very interesting story um, so that's it for now i'll see you next time thanks for listening